0: The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Support for this podcast is provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck & Co. Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Rahman, and I'm a professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, It's my pleasure to host another episode in our AUA University educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Advancing Equitable Opportunities for Recruitment of Diverse Patients to Clinical Trials. And and this diverse patient population we refer to really includes both uh, diversity of race ethnicity, gender, as well as patient age. It's really my pleasure to host uh, two thought leaders in this space, uh, Dr. Sarah Sutka and Dr. Adam Murphy. Dr. Sutka is a urologic oncologist who's associate professor in the Department of Urology at the University of Washington Medical Center. And she specializes in the management of the entire spectrum of urological oncology, including bladder, kidney, testis, and prostate cancer. Uh, Dr. Adam Murphy is assistant professor of urology as well as preventative medicine uh, at the Northwestern University School of Medicine. And uh, he does a lot of research focusing on health disparities faced by minority populations, particularly particularly with a lens towards prostate cancer, including uh, men affected by uh, HIV, African-American men, as well as uh, Hispanic populations. So first of all, um, Adam and Sarah, thank you so much uh, for joining uh, as part of this uh, podcast series and obviously for your uh, time and thoughtfulness in advance.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
2: Yes, I concur.
0: So um, I I think probably where we'll start off is uh, maybe have two big objectives maybe that we'll try to talk about and we can sort of bounce around a little bit, but Maybe um, I'll start off with, you know, one of our objectives here is really to um, hopefully highlight um, gaps, but also to help develop some sort of recruitment strategies for more equitable recruitment of some diverse patients into clinical trials and and really to expand clinical trial enrollment for those uh, patient populations that may be traditionally more underrepresented. So... If we just sort of look at that broad objective, you know, diverse patient populations and accrual into clinical trials, uh, maybe I'll just start off with both of you. You Why is this important? What is the significance for um, really all of us that are, you know, practicing in urology and all of us that do research where we are trying to um, uh, have a clinical trial portfolio at our individual centers? Dr. if
2: you want to go first?
1: Sure, I'm happy to take it. So, I mean, at the very core, Jay, um, we are all here to practice evidence-based medicine. And the highest level of evidence, we believe, comes from clinical trials. If clinical trials are in some way biased or the reporting is not transparent or clear, and most importantly, with respect to our conversation here, are the patient population is not generalizable to the patients in front of us it becomes harder to know how to apply that evidence and what the validity of that evidence is as we care for these people. So I just, I think that, you know, Adam and I both feel very strongly about this. And when I was in Chicago, we spent a lot of time talking about this. You know, we want to provide the same care. We want to find the same high level of care, the same excellence to everyone in our practice. And we see very varied, clinical practices. Are are the patient populations we see do not look like the ECOG zero, younger, healthier patients that commonly are accrued to clinical trials? And it's critical that we represent, we we have representation um, across the board in order to understand whether or not the, the findings that we're reading about are, are actually applicable to the people that we're taking care of in front of us. So I think this is critical to being able to provide the highest level of evidence so that uh, we can actually we can actually know how we can provide the best level of care for our patients.
0: Adam, a- a- any additional thoughts? And, and, I'm, and then I'm going to ask you a little bit about some specific examples where our listeners may understand some of the, the, the limitations to date of, of our, tri- our trial approval. But a- any thoughts at a starting point?
2: Yes, yeah, so, you know, I think the one thing that is uh, interesting is sometimes people forget that um, there are more connections between me and you, Dr. Rahman, genetically, than it is between you and your sister because of the X and Y chromosome difference. So I'm more related to you than your sister is. <laughs> and that means that all the studies that we do that look at uh, these trials if they're not including women in them, and it's a cancer for women, uh, we're oftentimes not really understanding what's happening in women. I think that's one thing that is that we forget uh, that 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 Y chromosome and the and sex hormones and all of that kind of affects how people respond to different treatments. Uh, the other thing I think that is uh, big is oftentimes the NIH and other federal agencies are targeting kind of representativeness of the Uh, to the U.S. population in trial recruitment. Uh, But really, if you have high-risk groups in that, let's say, or underrepresented groups in that, like women in bladder cancer, African-Americans in prostate cancer, you oftentimes have to have enough accrual to do subgroup analyses statistically to say something meaningful, or it takes you years of repeat analyses to figure it out in like a meta-analysis, which is not as great as an upfront clinical trial. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So,
0: you know, you always think about the fact that, you know, the holy grail of sort of uh, of, of scientific evidence is, is prospectively accrued clinical trials, right? You know, we always flaw retrospective data because retrospective data is retrospective, but prospectively accrued clinical trials is sort of like the holy grail of what we want to do, but the quality of what we get from that is predicated on... The composition of the population right and the applicable i think sarah you said it very well which is you can have the most beautifully run clinical trial but if it is only centered on a certain demographic age gender race and then you have a patient in your office who is not that age gender or race it's very hard at that point to know where the findings of this maybe sentinel clinical trial going to be applicable to the person sitting in front of you And I I think that you know that you both sort of hit that on the core, which is which is sort of they're only as good, you know, the information is only as good as um, the composition of what we have in them. So maybe I'll start off. Give us some examples. Give us some examples of maybe where um, we have missed. Having opportunities to have a more diverse patient population in existing trials that have occurred, or maybe patient populations, and and maybe I'll start with that because I think that'll help our listeners sort of understand the context of this.
1: Yeah, Adam, do you want to take that?
2: No, I, I, I like the taking turns, the tag team. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 Sounds good. Well, I think I think that we can we can look at perhaps another way of thinking about this is just where do we know that there are major disparities in our understanding of how to treat certain diseases, right? So if you look at disease processes in oncology where there are significantly disparate outcomes across a, a specific demographic line, bladder cancer in... Uh, And gender, as Adam pointed out before, is a great example. Women tend to present with more advanced bladder cancer. They also, stage for stage and grade for grade, have uh, inferior outcomes oncologically and survival-wise compared to men. That's largely because if we look at a lot of the trials that have been accrued, the percentage of the the trial population is substantially lower. the, The gender representation by women is substantially lower. And that's partially because bladder cancer is less common in women. But in that situation, we actually have to make a concerted effort to consider over accrual in order to understand. I, I would put out there just another um, sort of key example, uh, which is about age, which is something we maybe don't think about enough. Um, one of the the sort of, we're going to talk a lot about sort of strategies to improve um, accrual and, and recruitment for clinical trials in an equitable fashion, but... Um, if you look at most of the clinical trials that are published, the median age of the patients who participate is considerably lower than potentially the median age of patients with that disease that exist um, and and that's important because physiology as we age changes drastically. The interaction between comorbidities, competing comorbidities as well as the medications that are taken to treat those other illnesses with the, the intervention of choice for the trial, the whether it's a surgery or a, a systemic therapy or, or whatever else it might be, if we don't understand sort of how those, those interventions perform in the milieu of older physiology, older adult physiology, where there are differences in cardiac output and pulmonary function and vascular function and neurologic function, then we are again um, missing the mark and, and not able to potentially offer a very large patient population that has that disease, the right the right treatment. So I think that those are just a couple of, of very sort of broad examples of where we really don't understand how to manage key very large demographics uh, uh, sort of across um, across different di- different disease pathways. Um, and Adam can probably give some more specific examples as well.
2: You know, I love when you answer these questions because it's it's interesting to hear someone who is treating it in kind of this forefront way uh, of kind of, like I deal with early prostate cancer. I'm not in the metastatic or the advanced cancer space. So it's, it's interesting because bladder cancer is so chemo heavy, so cancer heavy, and in the urologist's lab uh, that you have a different lens on it. You know, I just remember... Uh, thinking when we were uh, counseling men at the VA or at Cook County where we worked together uh, about prostate cancer. And African-Americans oftentimes would choose radiation more often than they would surgery. And we actually were not happy about that choice often because they were young uh, when they would come in with it, right? And you think, oh, you have radiation, it's going to be harder to treat you if it, when it comes back. Um, But, you know, the data after years and years of multiple trials, someone went and did a meta-analysis and found out that they, in fact, do better on radiation than whites do. Uh, so our concern about kind of the overutilization of radiation versus radical prostatectomy um, maybe was our concern, and it really didn't bore out in the, the data. And so having that information up front would have been helpful for our counseling patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about, um, I do vitamin D research and we every, every, over and over again, you see these differences in immune signatures between prostate cancer patients that are black between blacks and whites. And that immune signature, uh, some, some people will say it's macrophages, others will say it's about plasma cells, others will say it's about helper T cells, right? But um, there's definitely differences in the infiltrates that go into the prostate And it wasn't so so surprising to see that the T work differently and more effectively uh, in metastatic prostate cancer in Blacks. So uh, I think uh, kind of learning from our mistakes, at least in prostate where it's clear that Blacks have this higher incidence and mortality, that oversampling of that group should be done. Um, Studies that are funded uh, and bladder cancer really should oversample uh, older patients and women. Um, and that may mean that you have to uh, get people who have high female uh, practices. Uh, you may have to en- enroll other folks or, or kind of have that as part of the strategy when the grant is written. Um, anyway, I think that that is something that we should be doing because you can get so far ahead in our precision oncology that you leave behind these groups completely. So, so Adam, I
0: think I think you hit on, you know, really what I was gonna ask both of you, which is, so it's, it's easy to sort of identify the problem, right? We just said it, you, you know, so you, clinical trials, you wanna have a more diverse representation of our population because the implications of these findings are more generalizable when you are accruing into trials, a more representative demographic across the board for a disease process. So the logical question is, okay, great. How, so, you know, how do you do this? How does, you know, Jay Rahman at Penn State do this? How does Adam Murphy at Northwestern, Sarah at Washington or anyone else, how do you, how do you start tackling this the, these challenges? And what are strategies that we should be employing um, at all of our sites to, to try to do a better job in tackling this problem?
1: Well, Jay, I think the first thing, and, and I want to make a key sort of point, which is that there's, there's even more reason to do this than what we've already said. Like, so yes, we need generalizable results, but also if we're more equitably accruing, that means we can accrue more people, which means we're going to be more successful at running our clinical trials. Like one of the biggest problems we have in this space is that cl- trials close because of failure to accrue. They don't get enough people on they take too long and by the time they're accrued and the 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 data reads out <clears throat> we actually it's it's obsolete we've already moved on to the, the next thing so us all being more thoughtful about how to be more inclusive in our recruitment practices to clinical trials helps for a lot of there, there's just benefits across the board. So there's there's a lot of, of factors that should motivate us to be thinking about this. And so I think, uh, you know, I'll take a first crack at this. I, when I think about strategies to more equitably recruit and accrue for clinical trials, the first thing is being super intentional about it it's making that equitable recruitment a priority and identifying and kind of naming the problem. You know, I think that a lot of times if we just kind of have good intentions to say, yeah, we're going to be equitable in how we accru- accrue and then just go about doing things in the usual standard fashion, you know, we miss an opportunity. But if we, are, if we are intentional and label that as a priority explicitly from the get-go, we're going to be much more successful because that's that's a Priority that's that everyone knows this trial needs to oversample this set of patients. So there have to be specific stated target enrollments, and they can't just be um, sort of in name only. They have to be they have to be central and, and critical to stated as central and critical to trial success. Um, so that's a, a a big part of it, I would say. And then I think that. I'm just going to, I'll take a few minutes and talk a little bit about how I think about getting people on trials who might not otherwise get on trials. And this was something, this was something I thought a lot about when I was in Chicago at Cook County. And I I still think about a lot now with the trials that I'm running here at UW. But so you have to, I I think I start with the lens that everybody's a candidate for a clinical trial because any patient who walks in should be considered for a trial. Because I think a lot of times people who are in trials get the best care. There's pretty good data that that's the case, right? If you're on a trial, you just have there, there's there's a lot of benefits to patients to being on clinical trials. So first thing is taking the time to discuss it with every patient who potentially could be um, there, I, uh, And I guess this this breaks down into two main factors, right? There's how you approach the patients, and then there's actually how you approach the trial design. And there's, those are the two sort of key ways. So just thinking about the patients, everybody gets approached to potentially is, is a, 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 could be included. Definitely working and making sure that when you think about what other study sites you sign up on your trial, if you have the opportunity, if it's a multi-center trial, to make sure that you are geographically representative. If you can, thinking about academic and community partnerships. Um, and and integrating the community site engagement, because a lot of times there may be specific community sites that are maybe have a a demographic that is more leaning towards one of these different um, sort of uh, demographic groups that you really want to make sure that you appropriately sample. I think it's making sure, just like we've talked about, where patients respond to physicians who look like them, having clinical trial staff who are diverse, can be really helpful too. Maybe who speak a language if you're trying to be thoughtful about um, enrolling folks who who predominantly speak Spanish. Um, having a clinical trials team leader who are t- or clinical trial coordinator who's Spanish speaking who, who can help with answering questions about the consent and the recruitment process. Um, that's just going to facilitate getting those people onto the study and, and creating a sense of trust, because there are, obviously, we, we can, we can definitely talk about the fact that there are, there are some concerns that patients who might not traditionally have participated in clinical trials, there, there might be some mistrust and some concern about what being on a trial means. And maybe that's just not something that they want to do because mm-hmm. of, of concerns that are either historic or, um, or more related to just like a, a lack of comfort with what that, what being on a trial even means so those are a couple of a couple of thoughts and then we can definitely talk more about sort of trial design because that i think is where there's a lot of room for um, improvement but i wanted to see adam i mean what I'm just trying to think about sort of all of the other things that we did to to really kind of engage communities around trial participation and normalize that as, as normal care what are the strategies to use
2: uh i have been really, really thinking about this a lot. Um, what happened recently was that I was uh, I'm on the chair. I'm the chair of the Education Committee for the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Initiatives for the Cancer Prevention Clinical Trials Network. It's a mouthful to me. And uh, uh, they asked me to talk about this topic, and I realized I've been involved in three reviews on this topic. And I read back on them and I don't like any of them. <laughs> don't tell my co-authors I said that. But I don't. And it's because it it well, Dr. Suka and I, when we worked together, we were uh in a Chicago, we were in Chicago, right? And we had five uh you know medical centers within seven miles of one another. Uh University of Chicago, University of Illinois at Chicago, Northwestern, Cook County, Jesse Brown VA and rush right all in the same city and then we had different demographics and we were trying to do a, a study together and what was happening is we we were able to recruit at three of those sites three of those six sites um and i think that there are really kind of protocol factors that dr suka is talking about and study team factors which she's also talking about is also patient factors right their research mistrust, their health literacy, their support systems. And then there's also um, your systemic factors that we can't control, like you know clinicaltrials.gov, uh, whether they have insurance or not, what we do for undocumented immigrants. Um, and then the other thing that we forget about sometimes is the relevance. The way we, you know, I was in business school And they said, Adam, you'd be rich if you can figure out how to get black people to spend their money on whatever product they want. This is a business school thing. It was not weird, completely normal thing to say. It sounds a little (laughs) weird, (laughs) because I'm black, right? (laughs) But it was fine, it was fine. (laughs) Uh, And I was like, oh, that's easy. You need to put black people in the commercials and have black people make the commercials, because they will know how to appeal to their people, right? And that's kind of what's happened, and, and you see that now everyone's like biracial or racially ambiguous. There's all these inter- interracial couples on TV because it makes people see themselves in the products, and I think we have to do that for the studies that we do, right? That there has to be someone who looks black or Hispanic or what, female or you know maybe even LGBTQ, a two plus. I'm getting. Better with these things now. Um, you know, I think we have to be representative in our brochures. We have to be really, really uh, clear with our research uh, coordinators and our PIs and site PIs and our, our providers who are recruiting into our studies who we care to enroll. And in those brochures, we have to say these are the high risk groups, these are the understudy groups. This will matter for your family and your own children and your grandchildren in the future, this data. And so I think we do badly. <laughs> uh, and I did badly when I started and having to work across Northwestern, the VA, Cook County, University of Chicago, uh, I learned that there really are these five different factors and, we ha- and they're all modifiable. Even clinicaltrials.gov uh, <laughs> um, is modifiable. One thing that I know the AUA is doing, which I think is cool, is they are trying to diversify the urology staff. I don't know, Dr. Rama, if you heard about this, but uh, I got approached mm-hmm. by Boston Scientific, and they are fund through the AUA funding a year long program for for underserved, um, my I'm sorry, underpop underrepresented physician groups, like. Um, BIPOC folks who do not match into urology hmm. to get a year in a lab, AUA is funding it to basically give them another, a better shot at matching again so that we can increase the diversity of the urology population hmm. of providers. So, I mean,
0: just from what you, you both were talking about, I picked up on a few things. I picked up um, certainly from the, the, Ergonomics of how one rolls out a trial—just the nuts and bolts at an individual center. There's there's things there are conscious efforts that can be made. Study personnel um, that can that can help in recruiting a more diverse patient population. Um, Adam, I think you certainly talked about the fact of, uh, and, and Sarah, you alluded to it too, which is. Um, what would, what are the, how do you tap into the motivations to attract certain patient populations? So, um, and, and recognizing that, as you highlighted, Adam, that you know, even in Chicago, for example, you are going to have a very diverse group of insured versus underinsured types of clinics that they're seen in, other factors that may impact based on travel time, costs, childcare, lack of child care. So, so I guess I would say, um, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you, are there other factors that you think about or are, are there other proactive things that can be done in our local communities um, that can target that? And, you know, just telehealth, for example, comes to mind, right? You know, and, and can that be done? Can that be implemented? Would that allow us to take away some of the barriers that may exist because it takes away the finances of driving, coming, Travel uh, and whatnot. So uh, maybe I'll ask. you, It was a big question or a big comment, but I, I throw it back to both of you on other issues that that we should be thinking about and other things that we could be doing so that we can um, more broadly capture a representation.
2: Can I say one thing about this? So one thing that came out in this recent webinar we did for the cancer. Can you, the Cancer Prevention Clinical Trial Network was um, that the interest in research participation is equal across racial groups. Hmm. From about 70 to 74% of people are willing to participate in studies if asked. That's what they said uh, on, on two different sets of data. One was from Proxy Health Education Network uh, and one was from BBK group. Um, anyway, the, the point of this is that I think the number one thing that your can do is train the coordinators, or first hire coordinators are actually willing to talk to people outside of their own racial group. And that sounds salacious a little bit, but I worked at the VA and my coordinators would routinely get asked to be married to somebody or to get asked for their phone numbers uh, while they were recruiting <laughs> people. And these women were oftentimes in uncomfortable positions, right? The the guys are older, they're typically like a pre-med or, you know, a a graduate student age female. And so when we were, or or male or not, right? But there was this age differential, the race differential was there. And I had to interview people who were fairly bold and, and believed in social justice and really, cared about the lab because of the, of the disparities angle I had. Because it made it so that they would go and talk to anybody. Because if you actually present the study to them, their accrual rates were the same by race. It wasn't like the Black coordinators did better than the white ones, did better than the Hispanic ones. Speaking, speaking Spanish and speaking the same language definitely did improve uh, enrollment, but race did not. Um, so I think that's one thing that we can just do is is to hire in a way, and I think millennials are much more um, kind of socially social justice driven than than our generation is, or at least mine. Um, so I think it's not hard to hire that way. Sure, Sarah, thoughts, comments?
1: Yeah, I think well. So first is, and it's really getting into like thinking about okay, what are going to be the barriers? Because if you can identify the barriers, then you can sort of target solutions. So, Jay, you brought up telehealth, and and I think that comes to this whole concept of the financial toxicity of, of participating in trials. So, if your trial is designed in such a fashion that you've got all these extra patient visits and or lab tests, so if the actual studies are covered by the trial budget that's fine but you do have to take into account that these patients are going to need to take time off of work and mm-hmm. take take money to travel and potentially need child care or older care at home or have to pay for all of these other um sort of ind- indirect costs outside of the actual costs of mm-hmm. the blood tests that they need to have done so if you want to have a representation across socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, gender, you need to think about, okay, well, what are the barriers to those per- people participating in these trials? If you're taking care of people who the finances are a major issue, which and that, that transcends all of these demographics, then you need to be thinking about funding and appropriate compensation to trial participants that allows the, the trial to at least net negative, if not sort of incentivize their participation. The other thing is, and this again gets into trial design. and, And so your study team matters. Having a trial protocol that is not unduly burdensome that matters. How do we figure that out? Well, that means you actually need to have patient advocates on your study team design, your study design team. And I think that one thing that's really wonderful that a lot of organizations are doing, especially f- research funders, so advocacy groups that fund research, like if you think about like the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, um, the um, even, even smaller sort of mechanisms are, are now requiring that a patient advocate sort of signs off on a trial design. And that's really important because a patient's gonna know whether or not a protocol is unduly burdensome and will potentially systematically exclude the participation of a, a key demographic. Um, if you're trying to target women and they there's some the, well, any parents actually that have young children, if you're looking at younger individuals that have, have kids. And I think and I we talk about over recruiting women, and obviously there's especially in the setting of the COVID pandemic, there's been pretty clear evidence of disproportionate sort of burden of childcare um, responsibilities that have been placed on women in some situations, and you're trying to recruit these women, then you have to be thinking about whether or not there are opportunities for sort of, even people have proposed like childcare for study visits and things like that, which is not not an unreasonable thing to propose if it's something that's gonna take a lot of time. So having the, the thoughtfulness to understand what are the implications of trial participation outside of just the study activities. Mm-hmm. What's this going to do to my patient's life? Uh, that and and telling patients that we're going, we we acknowledge that these are potential burdens, and here's how we're going to help you participate. So you need to we you know participating in a clinical trial is truly a a selfless and generous act. We all hope that from the, from a patient perspective and a provider perspective, we hope that patient is going to have a really good outcome. But if you think about it, at the core the core of any clinical trial design is the equipoise that we don't know if intervention A or intervention B is better. And so there's a, an incredible generosity of spirit that goes into patients participating. And so we do need to appropriately compensate and incentivize patients to participate in a way that that acknowledges that. And um, I, I think just going to thinking a little bit more about pragmatic study design and not overly exclusive inclusion criteria is also critical. So um, there's the, there's the kind of recruitment once you have your your set um, demographics that you're attempting to recruit, but then you have to think about, well, am I actually systematically, if I, if I am saying that everyone has to have an ECOG of zero, or you can't have any heart disease, or you can't have any lung disease, well, are you systematically excluding, then I'll go back to the example of older individuals who we actually really need to understand how these drugs might interact in if we're talking about, say, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, systemic therapies. So, To some degree, that's hard because, of course, anybody who's trying to to pitch a new intervention, you want that intervention to be as successful as possible. So you want to run it in the cleanest situation possible. But then again, the issue is the external validity of those results. Right. So we probably have to move a little bit away from these extremely tightly controlled, overly rigid um, uh, um, inclusion and exclusion criteria that don't permit. Uh, representative recruitment and, and make it almost too hard to get people in. And we have a, this one trial we're trying to accrue to right now. Um, it's a bladder cancer trial. And there's an issue that there has to be a lab run on post operative day two. Well, that means mm-hmm. that anybody who's operated on on Thursday can't participate because the labs mm-hmm. can't be done on the weekend. Right. And fortunately most many of our bladder cancer surgeons including myself are one of our main block days is thursdays so even things like that right. you have to think about okay you gotta you have to remove barriers to enrollment <laughs> make it you easy.
0: Know, i think one of the things that you said that i think is so important is is actually having the patients involved um to give their perspective so i'll tell you something interesting i was talking with my wife, my wife's not a urologist, she's a pediatrician, and she runs a lot of school-based depression screening in Pennsylvania. And she has, as part of her, one of her PCOR grants, she has a adolescent stakeholder network. So She took this grant, which she thought was a great study that was highly implementable, that had all of this great power calculations on how it was going to identify, and she showed it to her adolescent stakeholder network and they tore it apart. (laughs) And they said, well, we can't do this. This is not feasible. This is not how things work for school-based depression screening in our school district. And it's interesting, she came back, she said that was totally eye-opening because we had sort of constructed what we thought was an outstanding clinical trial that was gonna answer a really important question, childhood or adolescent depression and, and sort of mental toxicity. And the people that we were trying to address this for found innumerable flaws. So, to your point, I think that if the goal is to help our patients and to serve our patients with these trials, we need to be able to have our patients involved in the trial design as well as the critique to know what is feasible or not feasible, frankly. And I, I think you, you echoed that uh, point very clearly.
1: One other one other key point I would just put in that's that's a very pragmatic thing. I, I think that the consent structure for clinical trials can be unduly burdensome, and that can turn a lot of patients off. It also can turn a lot of physicians off because we're trying to consent these patients in the context of these busy visits while mm-hmm. dealing with oftentimes very challenging diagnoses, both emotionally and socially. And then you're like, and I want you to participate in a clinical trial. Here are all the bad things that can happen, which we all, we have to be very transparent about, but it's written in this language that is so hard to understand that it just makes it feel like this is just adding insult to injury. And why, why would I participate in this? So we do have to be thoughtful about making these trials much more approachable yep. and making the consent document absolutely um complete in terms of all of the information that goes into it but it needs to be written we have to be thoughtful about writing it say for a grade five to eight literacy level the language has to be simple has to be straightforward and it can't be 25 pages long and i think that that's really 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 critical so being much i think we're doing a better job about understanding how generally simpler presentation of data whether it's a poster at the aua that's gonna be much more digestible and people are gonna get the take home message more easily or a consent document, or even how we write our manuscripts, being simple, straightforward, and easy to sort of digest is always going to, you're gonna have a much more successful transfer of knowledge. Sure. And I think patients are gonna be much more likely to feel comfortable signing on. So things like that. And, and that's where it's helpful to have a study, a, a, a um, patient advocate actually read the consent document just as, as, your, as your, your wife experienced. And go through and say, yeah, this 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 reads well. Yeah. This I can take this home.
2: I think the other thing that you're talking about is, make, and ways to make it less burdensome, right, is to make sure that as many of these things are uh, confined to the actual visit that they actually have to go to already. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to minimize kind of outside of the kind of urology visit. Um, kind of interaction you have to have. Uh, we made it the habit now where if you have these surveys, you have to complete, right? Uh, using the versions that are shorter versus the long versions, if you can, uh, there are some that have versions for people with low literacy that are better than the, the full length versions. Um, finding versions that are translated into the multiple languages as often as possible. And I, we now give it because of Zoom and Teams and all that now, we give a printed copy of the surveys so that if a patient needs to leave to go pick up a kid, we can call you by Zoom or by phone later and you can have this packet and we can go through the forms together. Mm-hmm. Uh, add additional flexibilities so that people can you know, feel like you um, are valuing their time and allowing them to real li- live a real life. No, that's great. Um, well, I, I want to uh, thank you
0: both. Uh, it's, it's getting later on a Friday afternoon, so I, I, I don't want to keep either of you um, uh, longer um, than uh, than uh, longer than I've already had you. But but I really want to I want to thank you you both. Um, I, I think Sarah and I have already talked a little bit on a prior podcast about you know financial toxicity and a lot of the issues. I think we, we've alluded to, or some of the issues we've alluded to here, and then. Adam, you and I are, are uh, doing another podcast next week. And I, I think it'll be nice to be able to sort of dovetail on these issues. But I really want to thank you both, uh, obviously, for your time and, uh, and for your thoughtfulness. And uh, really appreciate you uh, joining uh, on this afternoon.
1: Thanks so much for having us. This is, this is a really important topic um, for us all to be aware of. And it's great to have a chance to talk a little bit more about ways that we can sort of handle this problem and, and do a better job of equitable recruitment to clinical trials.
2: I just thank you for the opportunity to do this. And uh, it's always great to see you, Dr. Suka. Uh, and to work on things that are really meaningful to, to people we serve, uh, which we are all committed to. So grateful for that.
0: Well, thanks to both of you. And, and certainly thanks to our audience um, for uh, joining us and, and certainly for any additional information uh, please visit us at auanet.org university. Uh, Adam, Sarah, thank you so much. Have a great day.
2: Enjoy. Thank and- you.